0: Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barkers UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. With the latest corporate earnings reports making grim readings and the global outlook looking bleak, we look at how best UK investors could successfully navigate through these interesting times, with Sarah Gresty, Head of Investments, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Word on the Street, where we discuss the news of the moment with experts and specialists, looking at how it affects the investments we design and maintain for our many treasured clients. This week, I'll be talking to Will about the latest on the UK and world economy, as well as anything interesting from the latest earning reports from the likes of Tesla and Microsoft. So I have lots of questions, but let's start here in the UK. It's been a pretty miserable headlines again this week. What's your views, Will? Hello, Sarah. Hello, everybody.
1: I think it would probably be easier to continue our conversation we were having just before about what is the favourite episode of Ghosts, which I'd recommend to everybody. But anyway, that's slightly separate. There are, like you say, no shortage of gloomy headlines on the UK at the moment. Broken Britain, you know, all that kind of thing. And look, we've said this before, the UK does face some serious challenges that can't be avoided some of them are global in nature but some of them are specific to these uh to these islands i i think there are a couple of things to say some of which will be familiar hopefully um first and this is really important and obvious uh, and it's a point that you know rob smith and maya would make and the other behavioral experts we're lucky enough to have but that is really remember the incentives of the headline writers a free press has always been incentivized to get and maintain our attention to whatever degree that is possible outrage is a popular and extremely successful strategy on this front there is even decent evidence to show that the advent of social media and the accompanying kind of sharp increase in competition for our eyeballs has accelerated this trend you know you're seeing more kind of outrage words and sort of you know depressing words and so on used in articles and headlines so be sure to handicap that when you're reading and fact check to whatever degree is possible i think you know rob and team would tell us to be particularly wary when that headline or story seems to conform to your pre-existing beliefs and worldview. Second, you know, I always want to stick in a sort of point of optimism. The UK is capable of finding its mojo again and retains some areas of core strength. Self-servingly, I would say long-held this is financial services. You know, even before the Industrial Revolution, the UK was in, you know, financial services powerhouse globally. That still endures. Life science is another one that's interesting. You know, we have still amazing universities in a capital city that remains, you know, the envy of the world as many others lovely cities as well. And that those are potentially important in the road ahead. Yes, Brexit would appear to be a kind of low probability policy play in the context of the likely continuing truth of something called gravity theory. That's that you're always going to trade most with your nearest geographic neighbour. How it doesn't, doesn't have to make long term productivity, growth and prosperity impossible, just maybe a bit less likely than it might have been. Third, get there eventually. But in the short run, I think the other point to make on the UK is inflation is capable of falling a bit quicker than feared as the economy continues to slow. That may hopefully provide a bit more room, policy room to support households in what is still a pretty precarious short-term outlook. Uh, So the other point just to make for investors, just remember this, I think it's super important to be honest, and we make it a lot, but that's why that's why we make it a lot because it's important. Um, <laughs> is that while the UK matters a lot for us who live here and depend on her services and our prosperity and so on, it's almost irrelevant to a globally diversified investor. Literally a rounding error in many ways. So just keep that in mind.
0: Well, that's that's really interesting because. Actually, I want to talk to you about the world economy as well, okay. so, which does feel a little brighter and perhaps even brighter than we thought it would be a month ago. Inflation coming down a little bit faster and increasing the we're seeing activity data a little bit stronger.
1: Yeah, there's a, there's a bit of that, Sarah. Yeah. And, and, and there are a range of reasons, some of which we've covered before. But some of it has simply been, you know, this is quite a random one, which is that winter has so far been a bit warmer than average uh, in much of the northern hemisphere. Not particularly in my household, I have to admit, but my Scottish wife resists heating at all costs. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, no, which is good, which is, you know, obviously a good thing, but I'm, I'm wimpy Southerner. So yes, energy prices, you know, as a result of that slightly warmer than average uh, Northern hemisphere, you know, energy prices have moderated a bit more and therefore destroyed a bit less household and business demand for other stuff outside of energy than only feared a couple of months ago, if that makes sense. China's reopening has also been a serious shock to consensus. If you think about it, uh, you know, that at the beginning of the year or, I'm sorry, you know, only a month ago was penciled in as a kind of second quarter story at the earliest. However, policymakers were seemingly boxed into a much more abrupt change to zero COVID by the increasingly visible discontent amongst Chinese citizens in several major cities, the effects of this are still to be determined. You know, that there's positives and negatives out of this. Uh, from the economy, it's kind of more positives than negatives. But we don't really know what will come from a public health perspective of what will come of unleashing, you know, iMicron into a population that still has significant vaccination holes uh, and little to no herd immunity. You know, tens of millions of people are being infected every day uh, on estimates and and. The borders are now open. However, from a global economy perspective, there is still significant pent-up demand here, and that's going to show up in all sorts of areas. So tourism, uh, you know, Chinese are by miles the biggest driver of global tourism. That's primarily intra-Asia with a bit of Europe, much less US. However, the sums are incredible. I think 2019, 150 million Chinese spent over $255 billion abroad. That's around twice the amount of the second placed tourist, the American. By 2022, amid zero COVID, that figure was down by 95%. Now, by the summer, that could bounce by half again. So it was really influential. And this is a big story for a lot of businesses, obviously. The other thing to note here is the energy story. So back in 2021, we saw like a surge in Chinese heavy industry. And that was a kind of very large, cumbersome butterfly flapping its wings Uh, in global energy markets. You saw sort of tornadoes the other side of the world kind of thing. Analogy doesn't really work. But anyway, it doesn't really matter. They, they essentially ran out of domestic sources of energy and were forced into shopping for energy in global LNG markets, you know, liquefied natural gas. And in a sense, the zero COVID chills since then was part of the story that allowed Europe so much more room than inspected uh, to fill up its reserves of LNG, liquefied natural gas over the last six or so months. So, But yes, to your original question, inflation globally does seem a bit softer and activity so far a bit less than feared. Quite a long wind way of saying it, but hopefully that gives you the picture.
0: That's helpful. Thank you. Um, But we still expect those higher US and other developed world interest rates to ultimately continue to chill activity and maybe even force the world into recession this year. What do you think?
1: Yeah, yeah. And actually, you know, that's still true, roughly. I mean, these probabilities do shift, you know, day by day, week by week, minute by minute, as data comes in and tells us a bit more about what might be coming in the road ahead. And actually, what we tend to call the lead indicators for the economy. So if you think about, you know, employment and inflation, they tend to be lagging indicators. They tell us really you know with some lag about what was going on not really what's coming so the pmi surveys these are purchasing manager indices surveys so this is kind of companies that go out and ask companies the same question each month and sort of give us the sort of the results of these surveys and they tell us a little bit or distill these surveys into single numbers about new orders and so on they tend to have a reasonably good but never infallible record but they are pointing to darker times ahead not unanimously but some of the important ones are and this is kind of what theory would mostly predict isn't it you know if you raise interest rates you should ultimately deter borrowing cool activity and with it price pressures and that's really what you know central bankers seem to be trying to do just as an interesting aside though maybe interesting only to me but as usual keep going keep going, keep going. okay i'll try I'm, yeah you're enabling me. I am. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we've spoken a bit about how very low interest rates of the last economic cycle actually seem to coincide with quite sluggish growth in some some places, you know, which would not quite sort of fit the theory, you know. But it did sort of conform to the idea that in a way, low interest rates, it's like that, the sort of leading a horse to water, but you can't make it drink, you know, in a way, low interest rates are only part of it appetite to borrow and lend are not universally set by the level of interest rates, if you think about it. And the relationship between interest rates, the appetite to borrow, productivity and growth... It's obviously very complex with loads of intended and unintended consequences. And as with everything, you should steer clear of strident voices, however alluring. But one much discussed negative has been this idea that super low interest rates remove some of the need for discipline in borrowing, spending and investment. And and this leads to something called capital misallocation. Now, if you assume, I'll try and Roughly explain that. If you assume that there's roughly a finite amount of investment spending at any one time, which is kind of true, but not really, you want that investment to be pouring into areas where it's going to make the most difference, where it's going to be the most productive. The idea here is that higher interest rates can be an important disciplinarian in some senses obviously, up to certain levels. We've spoken before also about how falling interest rates can be linked to declining corporate competition, because in a way that can be seen to confer ever greater advantages on the largest companies out there. Um, At least that's part of the story anyway. So it's really complicated. And I think, you know, this is still up for debate. We still know so little. That's what's interesting.
0: Okay, well, we're going to keep talking about that because you're right, we do know so little. But it just seems to be one of the more believable reasons for all that low productivity globally of the last few decades as we've seen kind of declining competition We think about google facebook and some of the other mega corps that they stimulated or well, as they grew they've kind of managed to buy up some of the competition and face less competition mm-hmm. kind of what's your views on that kind of yeah i mean this is a popular strand
1: and remember you know just as a reminder we bang on about productivity on this podcast a lot and i mean a lot But it's because it is everything to long-term investors. We all get confused, I think, in the short run that think market prices and our returns to investment are driven by some kind of edge that we can glean over other investors about information out there. That's generally not true. Most of your returns are going to come from that act of being in a diversified portfolio and hoping that the world continues to become much more productive and technology and all this kind of stuff. So this is why it's an obsession of this podcast in particular. And yes, that you know the point you make about uh, declining competition is one very prevalent line of thinking and in some geographies the US has been notable here the regulator views the degree of competition and Simplifying, but it views it through the prism of prices. The idea being that if there isn't enough competition, the monopolist or dominant player within a sector can simply raise prices as much as they fancy um, because there's no one to undercut them and you know compete against them in a sense. Now, many of the giant companies you mention have benefited in a sense, and there are certainly many met- metrics indicating a decline in sort of competitive intensity with both in with both within sectors and uh, and across them. Now. I think there's an interesting angle here with regards to one of the kind of technological frontiers of the moment. So much of productivity is not just about a sort of new family of innovative breakthroughs or general purpose technologies, say the computer or the Internet or electricity. It's about companies finding ways to use this breakthrough effectively. And these kind of more efficient practices and ideas, they spill over into the wider corporate sector. It's called the network effect. However, think about data aggregation in particular. So a company collects loads of data from its customers and uses it to kind of hone and improve its chances of making more profits in whatever way. But this is a very company-specific story, if you think about it in a way. There aren't the same kinds of spillovers that you might find from previous technological paradigms. It's also one where size matters. The smaller companies have less data, therefore get less benefit. Again, I'm simplifying and reductive as usual, but there's loads of interesting reading in this area for those who have appetite.
0: That takes us nicely on to the next subject I wanted to cover. What about corporate earning seasons? Any early indicators of interest, anything we should be looking out for. But I should say, obviously nothing here should constitute individual recommendations. So no, talk generally. Well, talk yes, generally. Yes, I'll
1: talk generally and that keeps me safe in a way because uh, we've got experts who can talk about that, but that ain't me. So yeah, well, we do have, you know, we're very lucky to have lots of experts we can call upon who help us build our multi-asset class funds and portfolios. And they focus very much on the uh, on the single line stuff. But you know, and I think from my perspective, from the sort of top-down perspective, you know, the corporate earnings season, you know, we've made this point before, corporate earnings seasons generally, you know, regularly deliver a lot more uh, noise than actual useful signal for kind of macro investors. It may be the same this time around. However, there does seem to be a bit more at stake here as, you know, equity investors, and you were making this point earlier, you know, they've seemingly perked up a good deal so far this year. You know, you've seen equity prices kind of recover a little bit. The inference being one inference being that many may be de-emphasizing the potential for that recession we just discussed this year based on some, you know, these tentatively encouraging spots of data. No, you know, the market isn't of one mind here and rarely is. But the real interest in this season is on profit margins more broadly. Can US PLC keep, and more you know broadly around the world, can global PLC keep cost growth contained amid surging wage and other pressures still? The jury's still out. We've had some interesting reports so far, but there's quite a way to go
0: okay well let's see where we are after more of the reports come in one final topic i wanted to cover is linked to all the news around ukraine this week now obviously our thoughts remain with all of those affected the thing i wanted to focus on today Mm. is the long and short term relationship between war and economic growth and productivity so maybe taking it to a question, is there any truth in this kind of arms race idea that somehow competition for technological superiority can ultimately be helpful? My instinct would be that a lot of this is lost in the needless loss of life and destruction of property. But Will, what's your thoughts? And maybe even a little bit of history as well would be helpful. <laughs> I don't
1: know. You don't, shouldn't say that. But yes, no, this is a weird, weird debate, isn't it? I mean, uh, war is bad. Simple as you just, you know, you just made it, uh, made that point very clear. However, there is something in this kind of competition idea that's interesting from an economics perspective. We've pointed before to the extremely powerful union formed during the Cold War in the US between, you know, this is in the post-Second you know, World War period, between companies, universities and the state. So many of the technological wonders of our contemporary world that we're using to record this podcast and communicate with and so on, they emerged during that period in many ways. However, there's another strand that relates to the debate we've referenced many times before, which is, you know, to the history point on why Europe took off in the 18th and 19th centuries and China didn't. I'm talking about economic takeoff. China looked a lot more promising for the ultimate takeoff, economic takeoff, throughout the Middle Ages. And some here have focused on the role of war in Europe.
0: So I know I'm going to regret this, but tell us a little bit more. (laughs) I led you into that anyway. Yes, gladly, gladly I would.
1: So, well, we travel back to 9th century europe Uh, the carolingian dynasty has collapsed and no power really no there's no single power which is able to acquire and maintain the type of territorial control managed by the romans people talk about the holy roman empire which was what was it that voltaire quote neither holy nor roman nor an empire but uh, that's slightly to the side but there's loads of reasons for this but we will Need to do some shortcuts and stop this being a several hours long, really boring podcast. But ultimately, what you find here is that there's this kind of Darwinian battle for survival amongst the patchwork of states that emerge from this period. So war is constant and basically places huge and constant pressure on finances and revenue raising capacity. So only the fittest survived. So you went from five, roughly 500 independent states in the year 1500, roughly, like I say, to 30. Four centuries later. And there's a great and very famous quote from one of the major contributors to this area of study, a guy called Tilly. Uh, he argued war made the state and the state made war. And it turned out that the type of states that emerged from this horror, multi-century horror, were well suited to the next phase of economic development. Now, China, on the other hand, had managed to consolidate territory much earlier and maintain it, not without violence, continuing and otherwise, but perhaps the degree and type of warfare was sufficiently different. So like I say, there is something
0: in this. But surely it's not repeatable or even a recommended route. It must be context specific?
1: Yes, definitely. I'm not recommending that, you know, the only way to productivity and the better state is war. But I think War and high interest rates. Yeah, Yeah, it's a weird idea, isn't it? No, that's not what we're saying at all. But all I'm trying to say is that, you know, we always need to sort of look at things from as many possible angles as possible. And I think, and as much perspective as possible, I I think the lesson is not might is right, or as anything as negative sum. This is potentially about the role of competition, back to that story, and actually how the, the state was ultimately restrained by corporate and business interests in Europe. If a certain genius fell out of favor with Run Ruler, for instance, there were always other states desperate to welcome them in and have their kind of, you know, so there was that competition for ideas, which became so important later. And that was a key outcome of this kind of jostling competition. That is not to back the extremes of this debate. Just quickly on state size and productivity, you know, the whole star the beast thing and productivity growth will follow. We don't necessarily subscribe to that or not simplistically so. Private sector, good state, bad, or indeed the reverse. As you know, this kind of these kind of arguments or the extremes of this argument tend to miss a lot of important nuance. Market prices have limitations. Many of the things we really care about are simply irrelevant to prices. Think about the opioid tragedy in the US or indeed some of the very negative externalities associated with the rise and rise of social media. More than that though, remember that a lot of these companies, going back to those companies reporting quarterly results, they're incentivized to a certain degree by short-term share price performance. In a way, they're not some of the sort of really risky areas of base research across a range of disciplines that we need. The corporate sector is not necessarily incentivized to take those risks. And the private sector, you know, in a way has been better historically at kicking down doors already opened a jar by research often performed somewhat thanklessly by the state. And that gets us back to that Cold War story of kind of industrial research labs, DARPA, which is that US kind of defence uh, we've talked about before. These are personal views, obviously. But it, it's a, again, it's a really interesting area. And I think just beware of the extremes of this debate. They're likely reductive.
0: Well, thank you, Will. I am going to end it there because otherwise I think we could talk forever. I think the message here is pretty familiar. You know, we are living in interesting times. The news headlines are pretty bleak. And we can even say in the near term, the outlook for the global economy is tough. However, it's the medium-term story that's really interesting for our sensibly diversified investors. The next industrial revo- resolu- revo- I can't even say. revolution may well Easy be to say. Uh, <laughs> you say it more than I do. I think that's, that's why you've got the edge here, <laughs> um, yes. as you have been banging on for some time now. But thank you, Will, for joining us today. And thank you, everyone, for listening. I look forward to another Word on the Street next week. All investments can fall, as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.